Yeah. Oh, perfect. All right. So we are on chapter four. We're in the middle of chapter four. And we started speaking about the idea of misappropriated trust. Meaning to say, the fact that we trust entirely in Hashem is not a contradiction to the fact that there are certain actions that we have to take and it would be irresponsible were we not to take those actions. Um, so we started talking about that and now we're going to continue. We're going to continue with that. Um, let's look inside the text. It's also not appropriate that a person should put himself into dangerous situations relying on his trust in, uh, in the decree, the divine decree. In other words, he's going to say, he's going to take this attitude that whatever Hashem decreed is already decreed. So if this is supposed to hurt me, it'll hurt me. If it's not supposed to hurt me, it won't hurt me. And therefore, what'll, what, what will he do? He'll do crazy, crazy things. Yishte same amaves. He will ingest deadly poisons. Or he will... Uh, go and fight lions or other wild animals if he doesn't have to. <laughs> By the way, I love I love the, uh, the I love Rabbeinu Bechayi's caveat there. If he doesn't have to, because <laughs> it's like this is like a Jewish thing. Like, listen, you're gonna have to fight lions, okay? That, but but don't just do it, stam. If unless you have to. I mean, it, it's we're laughing, but unfortunately, you know, there was a time when you know in the Roman era when Jews were forced to be gladiators and they had to fight uh, lion, uh, lions and bears and animals to, to entertain the crowds. You know the story about the, the Jew who was recruited to be a gladiator back in Roman times. And uh, they put him in the middle of the, the ring there in the Colosseum and the lion comes running out to him and uh, this ferocious lion's about to eat the Jew and the Jew bends over and he whispers something in the lion's ear and the lion turns, turns around and he, he runs off. So then later on, the, the captain of the gladiators comes over and he says to the Jew, you know, we saw, we've seen people who fight the lion and were able to survive, but, you know, what did you do? That the lion was going to, he was ready to eat you. And then you whispered something and then, then he didn't eat you. And the Jew said, well, I, I just whispered to him that after dinner, there will be speeches. <laughs> so don't fight lions if you don't have to. Oy, shiyashlich atzmei bayam. Or don't throw yourself into, into the sea or into the fire or anything like that. Anything that's like a risky thing and, and you're endangering your life. Don't do that. Don't tell me because you have been talking you can go and do these crazy things. In fact, Teda has already warned us about this. Sha'amal, it says, Do not test Hashem, your God, like you did at Masa. Interesting. What does it mean, at least in, according to this way of using the verse, is don't do crazy things that endanger yourself, even though uh, we know that Hashem is running the world. You're not going to get away with this for two reasons. They're one of two possibilities. Ay, <laughs> shiyamos. 
<laughs> so one alter one 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 scenario is he's gonna die. Either he's gonna kill, get himself killed, and he'll he'll have killed himself because he was being reckless, he was being negligent. And he will be held accountable to the same degree as if he had murdered someone else. Don't think because it's yourself you're allowed to do whatever you want. No, you're not allowed to. Your body is Hashem's property. You're not allowed to destroy it. Even though, yes, theologically, we all know that if he did something dangerous and he died, that was Bashar, that was Hashem's plan. But still, <laughs> who told you to go along with such a crazy plan? I, I, I'll, I'll, I'm going to finish the paragraph, and then I want to come back for a second and explain a little bit of the theology here. here doesn't mean a reincarnation, by the way. It means a case. You're not allowed to kill anybody in any case, right? You're not allowed to kill anybody. It says, don't kill. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Interesting. The closer the murderer is to the victim, so the more the punishment or the more culpable the murderer is. Like, you kill a stranger, but you kill your friend. I mean, they're both reprehensible, but it's even more reprehensible. By the way, it's interesting that statistically most people are killed by someone they know. Kamesh uh, Kosov, like it says, Al because he pursued his brother with the sword and cut off all pity. So it's especially reprehensible. Obviously, all murder is reprehensible, but it's especially reprehensible to kill someone who was your friend, someone who's your brother. Well, who's closer to you than yourself, right? Adam Korev Eitzel Atzmei. So to kill yourself is the most most reprehensible. So uh, yeah, don't do that. You know, it's it's interesting. There's a there's a chesedish about Reb Shmuel Shmalkum in Nicholsburg, that when he was the rav in Nicholsburg, Nicholsburg was not a chesedish The Magid sent him there. Anyways, they wanted to get rid of him at some point, and the shamash stood up for him. The shamash said, "No, you can't throw him out. I'll tell you why. He's a tzaddik. How do you know he's a tzaddik?" So the shamash was a simple yid. He says, "I'm a simple Jew. Look, if he's a Talmud Chacham or not, I don't know, but I, he's he's a he's a tzaddik, and I'll tell you why. Because uh, at night when I come around, uh, I guess he's cleaning up or uh, shutting things down or locking things up. He says I, I come by Shmelka's uh, house, and he's he's always sitting and talking to this uh, very holy-looking person." And I asked him once who it is. He told me it's Eliyahu Navi. So you see, he sees Eliyahu Navi every night. And then one night I came by, and he was with two people. The one guy who I heard was Eliyahu Navi, and this other guy who, who was wearing a crown. So I said, after they left, I said, who was the other guy this time? He had a different, different uh, second guy, Manshtana Alayla. So he said, well, this was Melech Menashe, Menashe ben Chizkiyo. And he came to me because I'm in the middle of a Din Torah right now, not locally, but in a nearby town. The Rav of a nearby town asked me to weigh in on an issue they had. There was a guy locally, a Yid, who was going around breaking the Tzlamim, you know, the religious symbols from the, uh, from the, the cloister, from the, you know, the, 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 from the churches. He was breaking their, uh, their symbols. And uh, obviously, a Jew going around doing that, that was, you know, well, it was more than frowned upon. It was, it was, they killed him for it. I mean, it was, it's not just vandalism, it's, you know, a high crime. So he, he was, he was, uh, he was killed uh, for doing that. 
Anyways, they had a local, um, like a charity for, for widows and orphans, widow, widow, widows and orphans fund. And uh, the, the, the almana of this guy who got executed for breaking the, the non-Jewish religious symbols, the, the widow came to them to collect money. And they said, no, because in our regulations, we have a, a rule that somebody who killed himself is not eligible. I mean, maybe, I, I, I'm just guessing, but maybe they didn't want to encourage people who were destitute that they would think, God forbid, you know, sometimes a breadwinner, a breadwinner thinks that, God forbid, his family will be financially better with, without him alive. So, God forbid, God forbid, you know, so maybe they didn't want to encourage something like that. At any rate, they had regulations that, in such a case, the, the widow couldn't collect. So she said, but he didn't kill himself. Uh, they killed him. Well, you know that if you go and you break the crucifix from the church, the, the, you, that, that's as good as signing your own death warrant. Of course, the, you're going to get yourself killed that way. Anyway, so the Rav from that town had to paskin whether or not this widow should collect um, from the fund. And he asked Reb Shmelka, and Reb Shmelka was learning and looking it up and trying to formulate an opinion. And that night, Eliyahu uh, Novi came and he brought with him uh, Melech Menashe with him, and uh, Menashe. We actually learned about Menashe in the early, earlier Latin in, in Perik uh, Gimel of Shara Betochen, right? We spoke about people who who have uh, certain schusim that uh, that they did good compared to the others in their generation. So Melech Menashe, he uh, he uh, he he, uh, was a, he was a wicked king who put up idols. And then he renounced the idols, but he had to do a tikkun for that. So he came back in a Gilgal as this guy who was breaking the, uh, the icons, or the, 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 non, the, 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 the religious, the religious uh, symbols. So he said, uh, you know, this, this was from heaven something that he had to do. He sent him back to do this, and please take care of this, uh, this widow. Anyway, so then the Shamash told them that, and they were impressed, and they said, okay, let's not fire him. And uh, Simcha Bonim used to tell this story, and he, he emphasized a whole different point from the story. He says, the, 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 to Simcha Bonim, the big deal of the story was the Shamash. That the Shamash saw Ilyonov. You know how many people want Gili Elio? They want a revelation of the private, uh, prophet Elijah. And this guy had it and didn't even think twice about it. He was just impressed that the Rav had Gili Elio. He didn't even think about the fact that he, he had also. At any rate, this is a long... Uh, I'm going uh, on, on a diversion here. The point is, people who do dangerous things and they know that it's going to get them killed, God forbid, so there's a certain responsibility there. You're not allowed to do that, even though, yes, it's true that Hashem runs the world. Okay, now remember I said I'm going to go back to the theology of this. So l let me talk a little bit about the, the theology. Okay, how do you understand, and Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar doesn't explain this, because again, this is not really a, a book of philosophy. It's a book of Musr, it's a book of ethics, it's telling us how to live the proper way. It's not, even remember in the last chapter when we got into why do bad things happen to good people, and we mentioned then that this is not a book of philosophy. Okay, so Rebbeinu Bechai is not going to get into this, but and, and, and I probably shouldn't get into it, but because it's sort of like the elephant in the room. By the way, you know, I have a friend, uh, he had a birthday, and I bought him, for his birthday, I bought him a present. I bought him an elephant, and he said to me, thank you, and I said, don't mention it. So the elephant in the room, you know, no one wants to mention the elephant in the room. You get the joke, right? Okay. So, uh, yeah. Oh, don't mention it. I told him, 
don't mention it. Okay, so what's the elephant in the room that we don't want to uh, mention? If it's true that everything really is by divine decree, so then you're telling me don't do irresponsible things that would cause me damage, but then how does that work? Am I causing things to happen that shouldn't happen? And if that's possible, then, then the whole idea of betochin seems to be um, in question. So I'll tell you how, uh, one way to look at it, okay? I'll tell you one way to look at it. Remember that, uh, what, what was it called? That uh, was it the Milgram experiment? Maybe somebody will Google it for me. But the, I think it was the Milgram experiment. There, was, there were two different things. There was a Stanford prison experiment. There was the Milgram experiment. I think that was at Yale. And it was someone to look it up for me. The, the, what they did is they wanted to see, it was, it was, I think it was in the 50s or 60s. The point is it wasn't so long after the atrocities of, of the Holocaust were becoming known. And the big famous thing that everyone said, you know, the, the Nazis, they said uh, we were following orders. We were just following orders. Okay. So they wanted to find out if, if it's true, do people just follow orders? So what they did is they, they made this experiment where a guy in a white lab coat, he was really an actor, he wasn't really a scientist, but he would get volunteers to be part of a psychological experiment. He didn't, they didn't know what the real purpose of the experiment was. They thought the experiment was about um, conditioning or, or reinforcement. Uh, so what, basically what they were told to do is you sit in a chair and you can't see the person you're talking to because they're in another room and you hear them with a radio, but you ask them questions, you know, like... You know, what's the capital of South Dakota? And they answer, um, Des Moines. No, I'm sorry, that's wrong. Now give them a little electric shock. Okay, they so have to push a button. And then you would hear over the radio, the guy that you're testing, he would be like, ow, okay. And then they'd ask him, you know, another question. You know, like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> what am I gonna do, make up pretend trivia questions? Okay. <laughs> that's a thing that I would do, but I'm not gonna do it now. Anyways. Um, and then, no, I'm sorry, that's wrong, push the button, and they would do the little button. Okay, so then each time, though, they'd be like, okay, turn it up a little bit, give them a little more, a little bit of bigger shock, and the guy would start screaming, like, ah, oh, wow, you know, like, it hurts, and, and people would stop. The people who were pushing the button, they would stop because they felt bad. They hear a human being in pain. They hear somebody screaming, so they would turn to the the guy in the white lab coat holding a clipboard looking very, you know, official, and they would say, I think it's hurting him. And all they would say to them is, it is very important for the purposes of this experiment that you continue. That's all they would say. They wouldn't explain anything. They would just say that line. It is very important for the purposes of this experiment that you continue. Okay? And then, okay, all right, fine. And they would push the button, and they would hear the guy scream. And then they would have, they, they keep turning up the knob. And finally, there was like a red line that said danger. And finally, they would tell them, turn it up, turn it up. And they would turn it past the red line that said danger. Now give them, give them, push the button, give them a shock. And they would hear terrible screaming, agony. And, and they would turn to the guy and say, I can't do this anymore. And he would just tell them, it is very important for the purposes of this experiment that you continue. And finally, you know, they would push the button and it would be silent. And they, you know, like, as if they had killed the guy, God forbid, right? Okay. So now afterwards, um, they would obviously tell them, you know, it's, it's not real, don't worry, you weren't shocking anybody, you didn't kill anybody. Okay. 
and it, I forget the number, but it was a frightening number of people who would go along with it. These were just regular people who were, you know, volunteers off the street who were picked to, you know, who volunteered to be part of the experiment. Regular people, and most of them went along with it and, and committed what they believed were atrocities against uh, fellow human beings. Um, but what's the point? What's my point here? What am I telling you about this whole thing? I'm telling you this because like this, imagine if you were part of this experiment and you had just pushed that button until a point where somebody had been screaming in agony and then they became silent. And you know how you would feel. You just killed somebody because somebody told you, somebody in a white coat told you to do it. Okay? You feel like a monster. Now imagine if they tell you, or when they tell you, oh, by the way, it was just an actor, it wasn't real. Okay, so first of all, obviously you're going to immediately feel relief. Nobody was hurt. Oh, thank God. Nobody was really hurt. It wasn't real. But here's my question. This is the real question. Whatever guilt you feel, whatever, however appalled you are at yourself for allowing yourself to go along with this, for being complicit in this cruelty, does that feeling abate to any degree by being told that it was just an act? Separate it. The, 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 the relief that nobody was hurt, yes, that I understand. You're, you're immediately relieved nobody was hurt. But I'm talking about a different thing. You're being appalled at your own lack of conscience. The guilt that you were willing to take such orders. Is that ameliorated to any extent by the fact that you find out that it wasn't real? And the answer is, it shouldn't be. Because for all you knew at that moment, you were doing those things. You were hurting somebody or killing them, God forbid, in such a way. So the degree of culpability, at least on the level of personal stock taking, at least on the level of, you know, what kind of person am I and what am I made of and what are my real principles and push come to shove, what am I willing to do? That, that hasn't changed by the fact that it wasn't real. The only thing that changed by the fact that it wasn't real is, thank God, nobody was really hurt. But as far as getting a glimpse into your, 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 your dark, ugly side of your nature, that's the same exact glimpse. And it's the same frightening truth. So, let's use that as a marshal, okay? Obviously, it's just a crude marshal that I've constructed for the, for the, for the sake of making a point. But think about it like this, that causation and culpability can be two separate things. Because in this case, there was no causation. He didn't cause anything to happen because it was all, it was all an act. And yet, there's still the same degree of culpability. Maybe the word isn't culpability, but the same degree of, of, of being complicit, the same degree of, you know, I'll put it this way. There's the teshuva and there's the tikkun. The tikkun is fixing what you broke. Okay, so in this case, nothing was broken, but teshuva is still required. Teshuva is, what kind of a person am I that I would do such, and th such a thing? What kind, of a what kind of a person am I that I chose such a thing for myself? What kind of a person am I that I thought that such a thing was, was an acceptable choice? So I still have to do teshuva, even if I didn't actually cause anything to happen. Or, or think about it like this. Imagine somebody who wanted to sin, they tried to sin, and they failed. Imagine the, the murderer who pulled out the gun, he pulled the trigger, and, and, and the gun jammed. Now, thank God, in action, the victim wasn't killed, okay? But as far as 
again, from the point of view of spiritual stock taking, what kind of person am I? What have I found out about myself? If I pull that trigger, even though the gun's not loaded, I didn't know it wasn't loaded, or the gun jams, I didn't expect it would jam, or, or somebody pushes me out of the way, or I miss, or whatever it is, none of that is relevant. The point is, I'm a person who was willing to do that, okay? So think about it like this. Let's say something is bashert. Let's say something's going to happen anyway. That's the way the script was written. I still have free choice. And I didn't know how it was going to end up. I didn't know that was the script. As far as I know, this is not scripted. It's improvised. And at this moment, I chose willingly, by my own free choice, to go along with the script. So even though that was the script, I didn't know it was the script. I thought I was choosing. Therefore, I am culpable, not for what I caused to happen, because in some ways I didn't really cause anything because it was going to happen anyway, but I was definitely culpable for choosing it, for making that choice. Now you're going to say, now this is getting really confusing, because hold on a second. What, but what if I hadn't chosen it? If I hadn't chosen it, then it wouldn't have happened, but you told me that it's predetermined. Okay, so then, then for that, I made up another, another metaphor. You ever play three-card Monty? Don't, okay? Or the shell game. Either way, three-card Monty or the shell game. It's the same type of thing. It's a scam. This is prestidigitation. This is sleight of hand. What they do is they have these guys. They're basically magicians, but they don't, they don't tell you they're magicians. Uh, is, it's a force. That's what they call it in magic. A force means getting somebody to do something without them knowing how manipulated they are. So what they do is they let you win it first. So you see the, you know, uh, you know, the queen usually. Look, you see where the queen is? Okay, fine. All right, track the card, track the Oh, you see which one? And they, they make it easy to track. It's under this one. Okay, you lift it. Oh, you're right. You're good at this. Let's try again. Oh, you're, you're, real, you're really good at this. You want to play for some money? And then they let you win, even let you win some money. Okay, why don't you bet, bet a lot of money because you're so good at this and you, you, know, you bet $100. And then they do the sleight of hand where it looks like they're throwing it this way. They're really throwing it that way. And they ask you to choose. Now, I want to ask you something. You shouldn't bet. You shouldn't gamble. It's not nice. But let's say you did. Let's say you did. Okay? And when you bet, you're giving your word. Okay? Now, they tell you to choose. Now, this guy is a master of sleight of hand. You're not going to beat him. He's going to outwit you. You're not going to outwit him. Okay? This is what he did his 10,000 hours of uh, practice for. But at this moment, if you're going to choose, and you're going to say, it's this card, he lifts it, oh, I'm so sorry, it's not that card. So do you get to walk away and say, I'm not giving, I'm not giving you the $100 because you, you cheated me? What do you mean he cheated you? He didn't cheat you. He outmaneuvered you. <laughs> he didn't cheat you. He, he, he's better at this than you are. You see, if, if you're playing one-on-one, -on -one, with Michael Jordan, and he makes the head fake, and then you go this way, and then he goes that way, and you break your ankle, is that cheating? Or is he just knows how to move in a way that you're not going to be able to, uh, to keep up, right? He knows how to make you move the way he wants you to, the way he wants you to move, not the way, that, but it's still your, your responsibility. You still made the choice. Okay, follow what I'm saying here, okay? Imagine you're playing three-card Monty, and the guy knows how to make you choose exactly what he wants you to choose. The fact is, though, he didn't hold a gun to your head and say, choose this. As far as you know, from your perspective, your experience is that of choosing. 
Now, he's such a master, he makes you choose exactly what he wanted you to choose, but you were still choosing with free choice, which is why if you were foolish enough to play three-card Monty with this guy, you would owe him the $100 because <laughs> you were choosing. Even though he knows how to manipulate your choice without you feeling it and get you to choose what he wants you to choose. So think about it like this. The truth is what's going to happen was already going to happen. And Hashem will get you to choose the thing that was in the script already. But that's irrelevant to you. That's irrelevant because from your perspective, you wouldn't know any of that. From your perspective, it was choice. And remember, there are two separate things. There's being responsible for causation and there's responsibility for a choice. Maybe I didn't actually cause something in the sense of I'm not God, I don't write the script of reality. However, there is definitely responsibility in terms of choice. I was willing to do this thing. I went along with it. Or in, in, the, in the idiom of our sages, megalglin schus al zakai. Megalglin al Good things happen through good people and not nice things happen through not nice people. So when something good happens through us, yeah, maybe it was beshert that was going to happen. It, it was beshert. But the fact that I was that Hashem knew he could count on me for that good thing to happen through me, that means there's a certain schus that I have. That's why, that's why it's called zakai. Also, schus, in addition to meaning a merit, it means zichuch, purity or refinement, which means you're more transparent. Refined means that you're not opaque. You're transparent. You're allowing, you're allowing the thing to flow through you, okay, unobstructed. So the point is like this. Hashem is orchestrating everything. Everything is according to His plan, all right? But we don't know what His plan is. I mean, we only know His plan retroactively. A second after it happens, then we know, oh, that must have been Beshert. How do I know? Because that's what happened, so it had to have been Beshert. But the second before it happens, or even the second while it's happening, we don't know, okay? And from, so from our perspective, our choice is real choice, and we have to be accountable for our choice. So maybe a person can never make himself die before his time, okay? Maybe theologically speaking, philosophically speaking, that's an impossibility. A person cannot make himself die a second before his allotted time. However, a person can be complicit with willfully making a choice to, to, to perform a behavior that upholds that narrative. And even if that was Bashert, his willingness to be complicit, to go along with it, and to make that choice is something that he's culpable for. I know this is very, 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 very complex. And uh, if I confused you more than I gave you clarity, then uh, forget everything I said. But uh, if it helps, great. The main point is, and uh, we're going to have to wrap it up here for tonight, um, the main, the main point is that Hashem's in control, and at the very same time, we are accountable to make good choices, safe choices, responsible choices. Let's read a little bit further and wrap up. So too, somebody who kills himself, that's a, you know, the worst thing, 
מפני שמושלה בזה כעבד שציוו עדיין אב לשמר מוקים לזמן ידוע. It's like a servant who the master told him to, to guard a certain place for a certain amount of time. וישהירי שלא יפרד ממנו עד שיבי שליח עדיין אב אליו. And don't leave, don't abandon your post until your replacement comes, you know, like the changing of the guard. וכיוון שראה שבישה ששליח לבי, but he saw that his replacement was not coming or was delayed. נפרד מן המוקים קדם ביי, so he abandoned his post before he was supposed to. וקוצף עליו עדיינב, ואנישי איניש גודל, so his master punishes him. חיינה מימסס עצמי, so to somebody who takes his own life, יצם עבדס הלקים אל המרסי בקונסי בסכונס המובס. He's abandoning Hashem's service and rebelling against him by exposing himself to, to lethal danger. That's why Shmuel Anavi, who was, he was a spiritual giant, and yet when Hashem sent him on a mission that he felt was dangerous to go anoint David while Shaul was still king, which would be high treason, he said, How can I go and Shaul will hear and he'll kill me? When, when, when Shmuel asked that question, that wasn't considered a lack of trust in Hashem. That's a responsible question. Actually, Hashem gave him a, a, a favorable response that showed that his prudence was, was commendable. He told him, He gave him a, an alibi. He says, Take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to God. Showed an Indian and the whole rest of the story. If Shmuel would have been exhibiting a lack of trust by asking, the question, Hashem would have answered him very differently, would have told him something like, He would have said, I put to death, I bring life, I wounded, I will heal. What are you, what are you worried about? It's all in my hands. Hashem would have told him something like that. Or something similar. Indeed, like Hashem told Meshe, at the time when he told him, He says, hold on, I can't speak. I, I have a speech impediment. And so Hashem told him, no, nah, that's not an excuse. Who gives a person a mouth to speak? Who's the one who makes somebody uh, dumb or deaf or seeing or blind? By the way, what's the difference there? Why did Hashem tell Shmuel, ah, you have a good point. Here, let me give you a cover. And he told Moshe, hey, what are you talking about? I'm the one who makes people speak. If, if I want you to speak, you'll be able to speak. You know what the difference is? The Paslachim explains because Moshe was worried about his ability to do something. Meaning, do I have the ability to do it? Hashem says, I give abilities. Don't worry, I'll give you the ability. Shmuel, on the other hand, was totally different. He wasn't questioning, do I have the ability to do it? He was worried about the consequences of doing it, that Shaul would come kill him. So for that, Hashem says, you're right. You know, in, the, in this world, you got to, you know, take precautions. Okay? Now, Shmuel, with his perfect piety, did not take the liberty of exposing himself even to a slight risk of danger. Even though he was doing a shlichus from Hashem, Hashem told him, fill your horn with oil, and, and I'm sending you to, to Yishai of Beis Lechem. Nevertheless, it was okay that he had 
concerns. How much more so if somebody doesn't even have the protection of a shliach mitzvah and he does something reckless that's, you know, unacceptable. Okay, so that's the first reason, the first reason why you shouldn't do reckless things, okay? Because you could get yourself killed, God forbid. Okay, now what's the second reason? Cliffhanger. For that, you have to come back tomorrow night, okay? All right.